guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Exodus. Now, last time we were here, we were finishing off um, the preparation for the building of the tabernacle and all of the articles involved in the tabernacle by God's assignment of two men, one like an, a chief overseer, Bezalel, and, and an administrative assistant, uh, Ohaliab. And these guys were uh, two oversee the building of the tabernacle as well as all of its articles. And then we looked at the sign of the Sabbath that was given for the nation of Israel. And we talked about how the Sabbath and in the giving of uh, the commandments concerning the Sabbath, how it was closely related to the tabernacle itself in the sense, all we were simply saying was how the Sabbath was given as an, a time of reflection and worship, but not in the sense of the commandment to worship in a specific way, but it is clear that worship was involved with the Sabbath because it was set apart as holy unto the Lord. And it was set apart for a specific day with relationship to how God did his work. That is six days. God created the world. And on the seventh day he rested and with respect to the tabernacle and all of these things, remember the whole issue of the tabernacle is the presence of God amongst his people. And so therefore it is a spiritual day of refreshing. Notice I say spiritual day of refreshing. So therefore the sense of worship is involved, but not in the sense of a stated worship, worship by doing this, for example, in the bringing in of the offerings, a burnt offerings, a peace offering, a meal offering. No, 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 not particular worship in that sense, but it is clear in this day of rest, there is a meditative sense of spiritual reflection, not just only in what the spiritual rejuvenate, I'm sorry, the physical rejuvenation of a man after six days of labor, but also in the spiritual refreshment of the individual. So that's the point I'm trying to make. We're not going to belabor that. So we finished that and now we continue on. Remember now, uh, as we get into chapter 32 and we're going to break up chapter 32 into, let's do two videos with this particular one. Let's do the sin of the people of Israel. And then we want to look at the, um, the sin of the people of Israel and Moses plea for them. And then on the second video, we'll look at the response of Moses when he actually goes down into the camp. Okay. We're going to look at the repercussions for these things in the second video. So let us, let us do a quick reflection. Moses, every since, uh, we're taking up from Exodus chapter 24 when Moses was, they had a, a meal with the Lord. They had a meal with the Lord. And that's what we see when the elders of Israel ate and drank in the presence of God. And then after this particular uh, affirm, uh, affirming meal that they had with the Lord, and that is affirming the covenant that they had made with God. I should, I'm sorry, that God made with them in that affirmation of the covenant meal that they had with God. Moses sent the elders of Israel back down the mountain because he, he allowed them to come up to the mountain to eat, but he sent them back down the mountain. And then Moses alone went up the mountain 
and there Moses continued to receive commandments from God. And this is when we talked about all of that stuff from chapters, what, 25 up until where we are now. And basically we have the uh, instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And the beauty of the instruction for the building of the tabernacle, once again, symbolizes the desire for, of God to be present with his people. Now, that is so important when we consider the overarching uh, uh, appearance of what we do have. Because what, what, okay, let's bring it together. Let's broaden it out a little bit. Uh, 40 days ago, because we know that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days here. 40 days ago, God had come down, come down from heaven in, in flames of fire on the mountain in great, uh, can I say pomp and circumstance? And there God made himself known unto the people and he spoke those 10 laws to the people, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments to the people. And as he spoke to the people, we know the people ran away. But the point is, God came and he began to give his covenant with his people, okay? And then after the giving of the covenant laws, not all of them, but some of them, that is the principal basis for the covenant laws. That's the Decalogue, but we want we to get into that discussion. But after doing these particular things, and then he calls Moses up to the mountain and gives him the instructions for the tabernacle so that God may dwell with his people. And we're not going to get into all of what the tabernacle mean, but we understand that the whole point of all of the blood that's involved in the tabernacle is, is the remembrance of sin. The people are sinful, but nevertheless, God still desires to dwell amongst them, but it has to be, uh, 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 God has to deal with sin first. But the point that I'm stressing is you have to understand. And that's one thing that the tabernacle talked about too. And we talked about that, but let me speed it up because I'm going a little bit too much in the intro, but God's desire to dwell with them and, and, at the same time, we see their sinfulness. That's why we have the need of all of the blood, the blood of, in all of the offering, even if whether it's a burnt offering or whether it's a sin offering or whatever, there's always that idea for blood and the cleansing that needs to, that blood needs to be cleansing. And then the sprinkling of the blood. We see the holiness of God, our holy God, that we cannot understand just how holy God is. God is holy in the absolute sense. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. There is no sin at all. But nevertheless, a holy God, a thrice, thrice holy God. That's what Isaiah saw. Holy, holy, holy. A thrice holy God is willing to condescend to come down and dwell amongst the sinful people. This is a great privilege. And God has already, let's look at what God has already done. He has brought the nation of Israel out of slavery, out of the bitter bondage of Egypt. He has showed them great power and deliverance of them. He has judged their enemies he has been providing and protecting them all this way. 
So God has shown himself to be a good, faithful, and loving God. And nevertheless, he lets them see their sins in the very building of the tabernacle itself. But he also manifests, he allows them to see his desire to dwell with them. So the, what I'm trying to bring to you is appreciation, appreciation. How much do they really appreciate what God has done and how quickly they forget all the things that God has done? And in the same sense, as we work through the text and by God's will, we're going to work through the text. But what you need to understand and what you need to see is there is this same thing that exists with us. We quickly forget and we don't have the right appreciation and the thanksgiving for all that God has done. And we show this by quickly turning aside from what God has told us to do. And for us, now let me just speak to us, even though I haven't gone into the text. If God had not given us his Holy Spirit to permanently indwell those who believe in him, that is, the Holy Spirit comes into every believer. If you believe that Jesus is God from heaven, that he has been made man, died for your sins, rose from the dead, if you are saved, God has given you his Holy Spirit to permanently indwell you. And if God had not done this, we would just walk away. We would be just as bad as the Israelites. And in a sense, we are. And this is the point that I'm trying to make from the practical sense, not just simply looking at what they did and how they rebelled against God, but at the same time comparing how we would do the same thing and we do the same thing. Okay. So without getting all of that, that intro was much longer than I anticipated. Now let's go into the instance of uh, uh, the, the issue of Israel's failure in the making of a molten calf. All right. So let's go into that. Chapter 32. We're going to only look at the first section. Verse one. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Okay, so let's talk about it. So what do we have? So Moses, remember, Moses went up into the mountain after the, uh, the e events of Exodus chapter 24, okay? And the elders eating and drinking before the Lord. We've already talked about all of that. Moses sent them down. He left, Moses left Aaron and Ur in charge of the people, her. He left him, Aaron and her, in charge of all of the people. So if there be any particular matters 
Aaron would be responsible for maintaining order in the camp of Israel, right? So Moses himself went near unto God to receive all of those instructions that we taught, that we saw chapters 25 through 31 concerning primarily the tabernacle. Remember, and you want to feel something when I talk about that. God's expressed desire to be with them. And here's the point. And this is how you act. This is how you act so quickly. But so Moses is there on the mountain receiving these instructions for 40 days. And so the people became impatient and came to Aaron and they, and you can notice the language of distancing that you kind of see. And so they come to Aaron and says, what? Make us a God of gold for, as for this Moses. And that's what I mean by language of distancing as, as if Moses is not uh, uh, important to them or Moses. There is no sensitivity towards Moses. That's what I'm trying to say. The man who has done so much for them, the man who has sacrificed for them, even his own personal life, they distanced themselves from Moses. As for this Moses who brought us from the land of Israel, we don't know what has become of him because Moses is going into the mountain for 40 days. But the thing that gets me is the response of Aaron. There is no resistance from him. Look at how quickly Aaron submits to the will of the people. And so, so what? So he tears them, tells them to tear off the golden earring, these golden earrings from, from the people, the sons and daughters and all of this type of stuff right here. Probably these gifts of what they got from the Egyptians. Remember how the scripture said that they spoiled the Egyptians before they left the land of Egypt. Okay, so he tells them to take off the golden rings, the earrings, the nose rings that they have from the Egyptians. And he goes along with making them a God of gold. Because notice what they say, make us, verse number one again, a God that will go up before us. So the people are still believing and thinking that they're going to the promised land, but what they want Aaron to do is to make them a physical representation of God. Now, let me tell you what they're not doing. Now, this is idolatry. This is the principle of idolatry, okay? However, what the people are not saying is, they are not trying to make new gods. What they are trying to do is, what they are wanting to do and did, is make a representation of the true God. And they represented the true God, Yahweh, in an image, in a golden image of a calf. And this is what they did, which was a violation of the second commandment to make of, uh, make, make of God an image of God uh, of, of any type of molding image of God. And th th that's the bottom line of what they did. Okay, 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 I'm babbling. So what happened? Aaron acquiesces. He goes along with what the people made and Aaron built. He formed a God of gold. And when he did that, verse number four, uh, uh, they, the people began to shout praises and said, what? This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Okay, now, 
here is where we need to take a look at the Hebrew a little bit. You see where it says, this is your God in verse number four that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Actually, they didn't, they didn't say this. Actually, they used the word, they said, my pronunciation of Hebrew is awful. I can read it a little bit better than I can pronounce it. That is, these are your gods, Israel. These are your gods, Israel. So it seems to suggest, because we hear, we see here they use the word these instead of actually this, in that Aaron might have made a pair of uh, golden, golden calves, okay? But he, the golden calf symbolized, it symbolized God. But he made more than one, and this is why they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So again, this was a violation of the second commandment to make of God an image of God to be worshipped, okay? And this is what they did. But anyway, nevertheless, so when Aaron saw that the people received this idol, this molten image, Aaron declared a day of worship. So notice, what did he do? He built an altar before the idol, all right? Again, it's a kind of finicky thing. They're not saying that the calf is God, but they are, rep they are trying to represent. They want a visible, visible uh, uh, physical thing that represents the true God. And so now he builds an altar that he may do what? Sacrifice unto this particular idol. Because in essence, that is actually what it becomes. So he makes an idol. He makes an altar before the idol. And he proclaims. Notice what he says. How do, how, how do we know? Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He calls it Hag Lag Yahweh. That's the Hebrew. Hag. A feast to the Lord. So notice. The idol was, they weren't calling the idol itself a God. It was a representation of the true God, Yahweh, because they announced a feast to Yahweh on tomorrow, but a feast to Yahweh in doing what? With respect to these calf or calves, which it seems to be the idea, these, with respect to these calves, this worship to God in this manner, that is worshiping God in a way that God would not receive and that God did not sanction. And, and whenever you begin to worship God in a manner that God has not sanctioned, that God has told you not to do, you inevitably, you, you don't just simply stop there, you go into even greater sins. You, number one, and I don't want to get into it, but I can understand why this video probably needs to be short. Again, we can see a principle that God sets forth even from the beginning. That is, and, and, and I don't have time to go into it, but we can see this in the worship in the two sons of Adam, Cain and Abel. Notice what happens in their worship, their presentation of their offerings. What? The offering of Abel was received. The offering of Cain was rejected. And notice what we see with respect to the law 
of Moses and all of the offerings. And as we continue to move through uh, these particular times, especially when we get into the book of Leviticus, what is it, chapter 10, when we see Nadab, the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, offering what the Bible calls a strange fire before the Lord. And notice the response of God. And we see all, all the time things of this nature. Uh, uh, um, you must come to God. The only worship that is acceptable to God is the worship that God commands. If you come before God in a way that God has restricted or God has not approved, God rejects your worship. And oftentimes, oftentimes there will be punishment and even in such worship, as we'll see in the history of Israel, I'm going too far on this one, but even as we will see, it will introduce greater sins. And that's the point that I want us to see. The greater sin, they started off with this thing in trying to worship God in a manner that God had not commanded. As a matter of fact, God commanded them not to, but notice how it will lead to even greater sins. And we're going to talk about what those greater sins are. But anyway, so he declares a feast unto the Lord and they have now built these calves as a symbol of the God who has brought them out of the land of Egypt. And the point here being what they have quickly forgotten Moses and they have quickly forgotten the command of God. Just back up your clock and 40 days ago, they were running from the mountain. That's Exodus chapter 20. They were running from the mountain in fear of their lives, not wanting to hear the voice of God anymore. They said themselves, lest we die. And quickly, as God is going to say, they turn aside from the commandments. And if we don't watch ourselves, we will quit. It doesn't take us long before we quickly turn aside from the Lord. But okay, let's go. Let's go. Verse number six. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now let's stop there. Let's stop there. So what happened? Remember Aaron said the next day he's going to proclaim a hog, a hog like Yahweh, Yahweh, a feast to the Lord. And so he built, he built an altar before the Lord. And the next day they had this particular feast before these idols. They had it. They celebrated what burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then here we have this statement that seems like a cryptic statement, but it's not necessarily cryptic. The people sat down to eat and to drink. Remember in the feast, you would have different types of celebrations in the offerings that would be bring in the sacrifices that would be being, and the people would be partakers of certain things after the feast, you know, 
That is the peace offerings. And I don't want to get into all of that. Not the burnt offerings, but the peace offerings. But nevertheless, the people would, would sit down, eat, and to drink in some sort of a celebratory meal. And that's what we see, okay? But remember, they have fornicated the true worship of God, and they are worshiping the true God in an idolatrous manner. So you, you, you're kind of like falling from grace already in the worship of God by the worship of this idol. So they're eating and drinking, but notice what it said, the rest of it. They rose up to play. They rose up to play. Now, when we see that the people rose up to play, the sense that the scripture is giving is sexual immorality. So what, so what we see, the people begin to devolve in their worship of God. The corruption of their worship of God ended in sexual immorality. The point that it starts in one case, first of all, they worship God in a manner to which God had disapproved already. That is the molten calf. Notice how one thing leads to another. That's number one. And number two, notice how sexuality, that is sexual immorality, always creeps in. Now, when we take this even to the New Testament sense, we find that when the apostle Paul would enumerate sins, that is Paul talk about, let these things not be present. And he would talk about sins of the flesh. Always when Paul made a list of sins, he always brought in sexual immorality. What am I trying to say? Whenever we do not worship God properly, whenever the worship of God is not proper, it devolves into other sins. And somehow or another, because this is not the worship of the true God, but this is the worship of the mind of man as he seeks to worship God. It always devolves and ends in sexual immorality. Why? Because this is not the worship of our true God, our spirit God. It becomes a worship of the flesh itself. It's, I, 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 I'm finding it a difficult in, in grasping why would you allow worship to devolve in this sense. But I think this is what's going on. This is really what happens. Our holy God gives us a manner into which we may approach him, our holy God. When we do not approach God in the manner in which, to the which he prescribes, then we are left to our own devices to approach God, our own sinful and fleshly devices. And when we understand the nature of who and what we are, we are sinful, then we devise baseless forms when we begin to try to worship God. We devise fleshly things, things that derive from the nature of our sinfulness as we try to approach a holy God. And when we understand our true sinful nature and we begin to act on those truths, our sinful nature, then 
it becomes widespread and evident. And I think that's basically what's going on here because it's just baffling. How do you go from a, a feast unto God, worshiping God, and you end up in broad, widespread sexual immorality? They rose up to play. Okay, and, and so it's, it's just boggling. But once again, let me make this statement here. This is why we always need to be aware of the prevalence of sexual immorality within us. When Paul, and I'm speaking Christians, whenever Paul is speaking, remember when Paul writes his letters, his epistles, he writes to the church. He is writing to those who claim Christ as Savior, to those who have been saved, to those who have been sanctified, as he talked about it in 1 Corinthians, okay? But when Paul enumerates sins, notice when we see the list of sin that Paul tells us to be aware of, especially like in the book of Galatians. Sexual immorality is always top of the list. My whole point in all of this is, if there is something that we always need to be aware of is the prevalence of sexual perversion, the sexual immorality in some way or another. We always need to be aware. It is always there in our society. It is there before our eyes. It is always there inside of ourselves, inside of our thoughts, it is always there and always seeking some manner or another, trying to get out, trying to lead us, trying to make itself evident. These are what the Bible calls the works of the flesh. Okay. So my whole point, and I'm going to stop right there, but my whole point is we need to be aware of sexual immorality in our own lives and the temptations around us back now. Let's go back to the text. Okay. Back to the text of Exodus. Cause I went way off, but so the people have now devolved in their worship to God. And now you can see widespread sexual immorality of the people. And now God begins to respond to Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse number seven, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I think I just, I read that already. So what do we see? Uh, God, he's angered because what the people have done and God is now distancing himself from the people. Notice the language that God used, right? He says to Moses, for your people. God does not claim them as his people. He tells Moses, these are your people. And we know that it was through the power by the hand of God that God delivered the people from the land of Egypt. But notice what he says, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. <laughs> so we see the distancing of God because of the corruption of the people. And notice what he says again in verse number eight, they have quickly turned aside from the way that I have commanded them. And God is completely aware of everything that they have done and everything that they have said. He, he knew that they made a calf, the molden image. He knew they made that. And he also knew the words 
that they were using. Notice what he said. And they have worshiped and sacrificed to it. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So God knew what they were doing. He knew their thoughts. And this is just simply to say, God knows all that we do. Okay. But anyway, now let's look at the response of Moses, uh, continuous fun of God, and then look at the response of Moses, verse 9 and 10, and then we get a response of Moses. The Lord said to Moses, verse number 9, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. So God simply says to Moses, I have seen this people. And I, and I like the, the way that the wording of that, not just seeing them of the past in their actions, but that it suggests a knowing in an absolute sense. And let me tell you something, God not only knew them in an absolute sense, he knows us in an absolute sense. And even when you read stuff like, when you read stuff like this, the first thing you want to do is to pray. Why? God knows you too. God knows me. He knows all of our proclivities. God knows what we have done and God knows what we will do. He knows what we are apt to do. I have seen this people. I know them. You know, I, it kind of brings to my mind like people say, I know them like I know the back of my hand. And what does God know about them? He said that because they're, they're obstinate. In the, in the Hebrew, it actually says that they are a stiff-necked people. In other words, they do not turn. They set their mind. They set their sights. They are stubborn in their ways like a donkey. Like a mule, they are stubborn people. They are an obstinate people. And so he says to Moses, let me alone. In other words, let me be, let me simmer in my anger towards them to the point where I will destroy the whole nation. So what do we see here? We see that the whole nation, for the most part, pretty much the, the only real, uh, 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 I don't want to be too uh, 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 pointed in this, but we only really see Joshua, who is at the foot of the mountain. We, we're not there yet, but we're going to get there. Joshua, who's at the foot of the mountain waiting on Moses, who is not really involved in it. Aaron seemed to be involved. The elders seem to be involved. It seems that the whole nation is involved in this false worship and all of this partying immorality, sexual immorality. The whole nation is involved in it. And God is saying to Moses, just let me be angry to the point that I destroy the whole nation. And from this, I'll make a great nation of you. I'll start all over again. I'll start with you. I am able, God is able from Moses at that particular time through Moses to raise up an entire nation. If he raised an entire nation from Abraham, he can raise an entire nation from Moses. Okay. So it, if Moses looked at this in a perverted sense, perverted sense, he could look at it in a sense of privilege. But Moses indeed is not a perverted man. Moses is a good man. 
He loves those who seemingly don't love him. And we know all of that. Why? Because of the people's interaction with Moses for the whole 40 years of this moving through the wilderness. They wanted to kill Moses on several occasions, but yet Moses loved those who did not love him. Okay, let me go. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So what? Let's bring this to a close. Now let's look at verse number 11. Look at the response of Moses. Moses did not look at God's uh, speaking to him to destroy the people as an opportunity for himself to have a nation that would be called by him. He didn't look at it that way. But Moses began to plead to God on behalf of God's people and even his own people. That is Moses' own people, okay? So Moses pleads for them. Verse 11, then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and, and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So what do we have? Moses Please to God on behalf of Israel, and he gives God three reasons. He puts before God three reasons in his request why God should not destroy the land, destroy the people of Israel. Okay, so the first thing he said, the first reason is number one is that's verse number eleven. Indeed, Lord, they are your people, and indeed, Lord. You did bring them out of the land of Egypt and it was with your hand of great power and it was in your uh, 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 great strength that you delivered them from the Egyptians. And this is verse number 11. So the first reason that Moses used is what? They are truly, Lord, your people that you did bring out. And then the second reason is the boast of the Egyptians. Remember, they were delivered from the Egyptians and how God destroyed the Egyptians. And so he was saying, what? Reason number two, don't give the Egyptians uh, a reason, ammunition to boast against you because you know what the Egyptians are going to say? He brought them out of Egypt just so he can kill them in the mountains. He, 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 so what kind of God is that? I guess he wasn't able to do all the things that Moses said that he was going to do, or he just simply brought them out to kill them himself. So he gives them, he gives, this is Moses, he gives God a second reason, the boast of the Egyptians. He said, don't let the Egyptians say this. And then the third reason, verse number 13, is the covenant. He says, remember the covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and he uses the new name for Jacob, Israel. Remember, God changed the name of Jacob to Israel. Remember the covenant that you made with them. 
the covenant to multiply their descendants and to give them the land of promise. So Moses appealed to God for, on three, for three reasons that we see, right? That they are indeed God's people that he delivered. And please don't let the Egyptians boast that you brought your people out to kill them in the mountains. And remember your covenant. He brought this before God so that God would hopefully change his mind. And we see a remarkable thing taking place for the remainder of this section. Verse number 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Let's stop there. So what happened? God is a gracious God. Truly, God was set to destroy the people. And what we, what we understand is we see all of these wonderful attributes about God being glorified. We see the judgment of God as God is being angered with his people because they have, what did he say? Quickly turned aside from the commandment. And then we see what? The mercy of God, the grace of God in that he allows himself to be entreated by Moses to change his mind. And what does God do? He graciously changes his mind. And notice I keep using the term grace. Why? Because the people deserved death, but God did not give them death. He gave them what grace he allowed them. He allowed himself to be attached to his people and he did not destroy his people. So we see these attributes of God being glorified in all of this thing, right? But nevertheless, what did we say? Let's go on, let's go on, let's finish it. Uh, so the Lord did change his mind and Moses went down from the mountain and notice, now here is what we can see. There's a sense of pathos. There is an emotion that we can see, almost a sympathy on behalf of God. Notice. God has just given Moses the instructions for the tabernacle. He wants to dwell with those people. And then God has even with what? His own finger inscribed on these two tablets, the holy and sacred law of God. He has given them to Moses so that Moses may give them to the people. These things are valuable and precious. The word of God, the law of God, the tabernacle that Moses is instructed to build, the priesthood, how God has made a system whereby the people may approach him, may be sanctified and may be made holy before a holy God. And, but remember, you are sinful. Remember all the blood that we talked about earlier. Remember all of that. And then these tablets, you can almost see, uh, it breaks my heart as in my mind, I see Moses coming down from the mountain with these sacred tablets written by the finger of God on both sides of the tablet for his, what do you call the people? For his obstinate people, for his difficult people, for his sinful people in all that God has done for them. 
from the moment of their great deliverance unto the giving of these holy and sacred laws unto this holy and sacred structure, the tabernacle, by the which God, a holy God, may dwell in the midst of his people. And how do you repay him? And God says, by quickly turning aside from the commandment. It just breaks my heart when I see this. But, but anyway, so they leave the mountain with the sacred tablets. Let's finish this section and we're going to wrap it up. 17 and 18, we wrap it up on this one. Now, when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor it is the sound of the cry of defeat, but a sound of singing I hear. All right, let's stop there. <laughs> you know what? I probably should, should have stopped earlier, uh, but let's finish it out. So Moses coming down from the mountain. There he meets his servant Joshua, whom he had taken with him when he went up to the mountain 40 days ago. And there's a beautiful unspoken picture here. Joshua did not get involved in their mess. Joshua did not get involved with their mess. Joshua did not get involved with the golden calf and he did not get involved with the sexual immorality. Joshua was not easily persuaded by the people with the people like Aaron and like Ur. And we understand that it, was, it would be Joshua who would be the next leader for the people of Israel to bring them into the land of promise. So all I'm saying here is this, you should have a mind to say, I want to be like Joshua. Though other folks might get involved in all of this mess. Lord, keep me from that mess. Keep me near you. And notice, even though Joshua was not permitted to come before the Lord like Moses, he drew as near as he could. Joshua was still at the base of that, on that mountain waiting for Moses. Lord, Keep me near you. So Moses comes down from the mountain and there he sees Joshua. And all of a sudden, Joshua, he says, I hear noise in the camp. He said, there's a sound of war. So the sound of war in the camp. Now, let me break it down to you. Remember when it said about when the scripture said the people sat down to eat and to drink, rose up to play. And the playing was that immorality that they were involved, that gross sexual immorality. Imagine that the partying and literally these people are like partying to the break of dawn. The, the, how are you worshiping God like this in this gross immorality? But it is to the extent that these people are just literally partying, celebrating and shouting that it actually sounds like the nation is at war. Now, that is an amazing thought when you think th those folk are having such a good time. They are so loud in, in partying. It sounds like war. And Moses, because Moses has already been made aware by God what's going on by the making of the golden calf and the like and the worshiping of it. Moses has already been made aware by God. He responds to Joshua and says, this is not the sound of the cry of triumph. This is not the sound of a people battling their enemies 
and the people are winning over their enemies. This is not the sound of war where the people are being overcome by their enemies. The people are defeated. So Moses is saying, this is not the sound of victory, nor is this the voice of being defeated by the enemy. Joshua, this is not war. Whether winning or losing, this is not war, but this is the sound of revelry. This is the voice of singing I hear. This is celebratory, rejoicing in immorality, rejoicing in idolatry, rejoicing in their disobedience. And enough of that. Okay, I'm done. I thought this video was going to be much shorter, but the point that I want to make is this. What is Moses trying to say? What is the practical nature of this that we should see? It's only been 40 days since they were brought to the mountain and heard the voice of God. They saw the thundering, the lightning, the voice and all of that. And the mountain burned with fire, the sound of the trumpet blowing louder and louder and God speaking, I am Yahweh your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the one responsible for bringing you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. Only been 40 days through that great display of power. Then God bringing Moses, they allowed them to have a meal before the living God. The Bible said they sought the God of Israel and he did not stretch out his hand against them because it was always taboo. It was always believed that if you saw God, you would surely die. But God allowed them to see a certain manifestation of his presence. He allowed them that. That's great privilege. Then God gives them the chapters 25 through 31, the building of the tabernacle, how it was an expression of God, his desire to dwell with them. And the point of it all, they quickly forgot. They quickly forgot. And that's what I want us to remember. That's what I myself want to remember in all that God has done do we quickly forget okay enough of that thanks guys for joining me with that great uh, teaching in the sense of remembrance remembering of what God has done Israel should have remembered we should also remember it and that's why I say it was a great teaching that we need to remember but Thanks for joining me with that. Join me next time as we finish out this particular chapter and we see the response of Moses once he goes into the congregation of the people. And if this video has been a blessing to you, there's always a description, there's always a link in the description that you can use to support the ministry. All right, guys, see you next time.